Our God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen, he doesn't obey my commands, and we can't even bribe him with treats. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whisperers. Listening to the world famous God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. I'm Bill Swirla. We've got an action-packed day for you. Action-packed. Exciting. It's as white hot as the the pavement outside my office. <laughs> we are it's serious. California has just been scorching. California is being punished. We're just being. This is hellfire and brimstone. I don't know whether it's coming from the depths of hell or whether it's coming from the hand of God, but it, it is just just burning hot. Last last week was incredible. We were get this, 116 degrees. Oh, oh that's that's like Palm Springs. Oh, it's Mojave pain. Desert, icky hot. Yeah, I, the, I you know I think the hottest my body has ever experienced is 124. Where was that? A baker. You know, oh, out yeah. in the desert, that's that town. The yeah, little, they, don't, they don't call that Baker for nothing. <laughs> no, <laughs> they have that the big thermometer <laughs> in the middle of town. Yeah, yeah. You know, like they take pride in it. There's, oh, it's only 110. It's I'm chilly. I need a sweater. But it was 124. It was just brutal. But, but you know, you can't, once you get up above 110, your body really doesn't tell the difference. It's just hot. <laughs> Just it's hot. it's all oppressive one way or the other. I was thinking of of doing some uh, some you know baking on the dashboard of my car. I, I've seen I've seen where people are doing that. You know they they do uh they do uh cookies and and various kinds of cooking on the dashboard. Yeah, I mean you're probably up to about two twenty five. You you could do oh, low yeah. and slow. You put some smoking oh, chips yeah. down and uh, you could probably smoke a rump roast. Just a little liquid smoke, and you're good to go. There you go. You could you could probably do a brisket on on your on on the the roof of your car. You know, when we were doing our mission thing, uh, we were out in Palm Springs for about a week, and uh, they had a, a record breaking heat wave there. And Paula was with me, and and we were driving somewhere, and the car wouldn't cool down in the parking structure. It was like 127 degrees in the parking structure. Ugly. And the car wouldn't cool down, and poor girl started having a panic attack because oh, yeah. it was just so oppressive. <laughs> it and uh, 1911, the East Coast suffered this heat wave that was so extreme that people actually went insane and killed themselves <laughs> because it was so hot. That is hot, yeah. Oh, I was draping. Uh, yeah, I've got these tomatoes going. I had a great, I had a great crop going. I had tomatoes. Like, in fact, I, I just had taken picture of the the raised beds, and I had all these green tomatoes, huge clusters of tomatoes. And I got fried green tomatoes is what I've got. Those <laughs> things just got boiled in the sun. Unreal. Aye, aye, aye. So I, I'm draping everything in sh- in summer shade cloth and improvising. I, I look like I have like a, a tent encampment out in my garden right now as I'm trying to just shade everything. But well, you're in it LA. was tough. It's, it's fitting. 
<laughs> LA County. We're being fine. punished for something. I, you got I don't a know homeless what it is. Uh, camp in your backyard. Yeah. Well, hey, don't joke. That that's that's next. Uh, oh no, those those poor folks. They've got to really be suffering in that heat out on the streets and everything. That's that's just unmerciful. Yeah. Well. Yeah. It's it's a way of life. <laughs> yeah. It's off the grid living. Yeah. Yeah. So how's the Royal Ohana Room? The Royal Ohana Room is it open is, for business? Is good. It's open for business. We had uh, <laughs> Sweet Baby Ray and Aubrey come out from Fort Wayne. Oh, nice. Who were, uh, you know, Orange County friends. And, okay. Uh, so they helped us inaugurate the Royal Ohana Room, and then after uh, after church on Wednesday, my vice president and his wife came over, and nice. And, uh, we uh, wetted it once again. So. <laughs> do, do you have like a guest sign-in book? We have one now. Good. Yeah. A wonderful lady, Bonnie Joe, who's a, a friend of ours over in Hawaii in Honolulu. And uh, she just sent us a care package out of the blue and uh, really, <laughs> really sweet. All sorts of really neat stuff. But she sent us a, uh, a guest book also. Oh, sweet. So it's like so a B&B, except yours is a bar. But it's, right. a, it's a private yeah. bar. So you really need to know who's been there. and Because uh, I think in time, it's going to be destination. I it it will be in some Lutheran circles, yes, I believe so. I know or the tiki circles are, are ready to make their reservations. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it's people people driving through. They're going through Cleveland, and they say, you know, we need to go to the Royal Ohana Room. And we need a cocktail. Yeah, we, we need we, we, now. we need we need a fruity potent cocktail. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, that's good. I see your Cleveland Indians are ensconced in first place. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're doing really well. Man, they blew one the other night, though. They were playing Cincinnati, mm. and uh, they were going into the ninth inning. I think there were three or four runs ahead, and uh, the Reds had like a six- or seven-run inning, just destroyed the Indians. Yeah, that, it was really tragic. Those You get that, that inning where, where the wheels just come off, and, and that's yeah, it. Yeah, and it was ninth inning, too. So there's, Oh, that's there's even worse. Hardly any coming back from that. <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> well, that isn't the fine Cleveland Indian tradition. Uh, no, no. Well, to, to their credit, they came back the other day and, and destroyed them after that. So. I, uh, I had a chance to see my Cubs play the Dodgers. Ooh, and nice. a couple of weeks ago, that was fun. Uh, the The Cubs only snagged one out of three from the Dodgers, but that was the one they did, and on a Javier Baez grand slam, and he hit that ball so hard that nobody in the outfield even flinched. They just stood there <laughs> like statues, and I, they I, saw the ball hit the bat, and it was over. They yeah, hit. and from my perspective, I thought the ball was radically foul because nobody was moving. No, oh. it was just radically hit. It that thing was. It never came down. It was just a bullet line drive straight into the bleachers, and they didn't now, even this, have a chance. Uh, was this an evening game? Or? Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, oh, good. Uh, so you weren't out there struggling. It was heat. still. It was still hot, even after the sunset. It was still toasty, sure. you know. And everybody's everybody's Dodger Stadium, so everybody's drunk. And, and violent and it was it was it was a, good, a great time was had by all now were, were you wearing any cubs gear i was uh, I, although subtle you have to know you so, didn't get stabbed no anything. and in fact i was sitting like two rows in back of some cub fans and they got it they saw it but i was wearing my black um eyeglass frame you know the joe madden eyeglass frame t-shirt okay. that says we did not suck 2016 it doesn't that's all that's there's no no cubs no chicago cubs no world champion it's just and because that was what madden uh, at the at the big celebration in grant park when the cubs won the 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 world series 
he comes out with this T-shirt that says "We did not suck," <laughs> and That's it, funny. and it went viral. Everybody wanted one at that point, so I, nice. yeah, I, I told all the relatives, and and everybody gave me one. I've got like three or four of these shirts: uh, long sleeve, short sleeve, blue, black, doesn't matter. But yeah, I wore that, and all the Cubs fans, yo Cubs, you know, and they 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 loved it. But uh, yeah, you have to be kind of you have to be kind of. Yeah, I, I believe that the Dodgers' Careful. natural in, enemy is San Francisco. Very much so. That yeah, that's that's yeah, heated. So that's, that's that's the one where you get stabbed. That, that's that's yeah. the one where the that's why they have the ambulance outside the park at all times. <laughs> right. That's a little bit like Red Sox Yankees. Oh yeah, you know yeah. you know nothing nothing good is going to come out of this, and so you just lay really low. And it, there were some. It was getting a little tense. That there was a there was a very drunk Dodgers fan uh, sitting in front of this this row, a couple of rows of, of Cubs fans, and they were engaging. There was, there was verbal and it was friendly, but, but you could tell the security was watching really closely because every inning they would add another security person and they didn't do anything. They just right. kept adding security people saying, you know, as this goes on and he keeps drinking, just this escalating could... the presence. Yeah. The they, and so it was very clear that they were watching this very, very, very closely. So, and I'm just, I'm, sufficiently far back that I'm probably not going to get spillover violence because I'm not a fighting kind of guy. You know, I'm just going to kind of get out of there as quickly as possible. Now, having shared season tickets with my brothers uh, for the Angels, uh, I will tell you that when the Yankees were in town or when the Red Sox were in town, those were the games that you show up to with your Kevlar. Because <laughs> the fans that come from New York or from Hard Hat, are Kevlar, belligerent psychopaths. Oh, they are. They are. I mean, when I went to a Yankees game once with the Red Sox way back, it was back in the uh, late seventies, and at the end of every <clears throat> inning, it, it it was like a sport. It was like find a Red Sox fan and dump a beer on him. <laughs> it was intentional. You could tell it was planned. People would be pointing, oh, there's the Red Sox fan. And all of a sudden, end of the inning comes, boom, beers flying all over the place. And inevitably, then the fight breaks out. And uh, it's, it was just just horrific. Hey, uh, dear listeners, I want to com- uh, commend you. Commend. For, We're commending for listening the listeners. And for rating us also. Oh, yes. And uh, those of you who have not gone to iTunes and given us five stars and gushed about how wonderful we keep are. Keep the ratings high, baby. Keep, keep them going because it feeds Bill's ego. And as long as Bill's ego is fed, I'm happy doing this show. I'm just happy. That's I, keep, I keep coming back for more. And, and donate, too. Yes, we're, by all we're, means. we've we've upgraded a little bit of equipment here. We're we're uh, we got we're more to upgrade. We're actually so. we're actually styling. We're we're doing quite well. So, hmm, mailbag, mailbag. Let's go to the mailbag. The God Whispers mailbag brought to you by Rival MLB Baseball Fight Night <laughs> and Global Warming. Um, dear GW, I'm confused. Aren't we all? Is gambling a sin or isn't it? I like to think that gambling is fine. It's just a way to blow off some steam and enjoy the company of other people and the fun of games, but I'm somehow not entirely at ease. I do know that some people become addicted to gambling, and that would be bad, or some people waste all their savings in gambling, and that's also bad. And I'm not talking about that, but is gambling in general a sin? What do you think? Hmm. What do you think? Oh, so you're throwing that at me. What do you yeah, think? what do you think? 
Um, I, you know, as long as it's entertainment and it doesn't get out of hand and it's not taking food from the mouth of your babies, you know, if, if you're going to spend 50 bucks going to the movies and a uh, little fast food with the wife or 50 bucks at the crafts table, as long as that's it, that's it. And you can handle it. It's, it's like alcohol or anything else. You can abuse it. You can become addicted to it. It, it feeds those little pleasure centers in your brain when you manage to hit the jackpot or whatever. But, um, you know, as long as it doesn't become a problem, I don't know that Scripture actually talks about it. As a matter of fact, the, the 13th apostle was elected via gambling. It was a, <laughs> funny you mentioned that. The, the roll of the dice, so to speak, seems to be a way that they discern the will of God. Yeah. Uh, the I think that also goes back to the Old Testament, the Urim and Thummim, those two stones that there were two pockets in, in the, the breastplate or the ephod of the high priest, and that was for discernment. That was for discerning the will of God. I think it was kind of a rocks, paper, scissors sort of thing where you kind of cast these stones. I don't know what they looked like. I don't know how that worked. But there seemed to be some element of it's like the eight ball. Remember the eight ball you played around with the when you were a kid? Ball, magic yeah. eight ball. Uh, but somehow you you discern the will of God for various kinds of practical decisions with the with the urim and thummim. Uh, yeah, and you're right. Matthias was elected by first of all a winnowing. They 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 nailed they shortened it to a short list of two. Sure. And the criteria were they had to have been with the band of disciples since the beginning, since the baptism of John, and had to be eyewitnesses to the resurrection, because that was the big thing. You had to have seen the risen Lord. Uh, but they, nailed, they, they, they narrowed it to two, and they prayed, and they drew lots, it says, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he's, he was the replacement for Judas, which uh, I, I hear this once in a while. People say, well, that'd be a good way to call a pastor today. You know, put maybe put two names on the altar, pray and blind draw one of them. That's your call. Could, you could do worse, I would kind say. Of pastor Bingo. I, I think that leads to a deeper kind of concept, which I would call the hiddenness of God, the Deus abscondicus. You know that God hides, and I think God hides behind randomness and chance and and just plain dumb luck. So, for example. Uh, in in evolutionary biology, you know the mechanism that drives evolution are these chance mutations. They say, but I would come back and say, what a perfect place for God to hide behind chance, randomness. Um, what evidence would I have from the Bible? The Book of Esther. Book of Esther is is a book about it just so happened. Everything just kind of seems to work out. God is never explicitly mentioned in the Hebrew version of Esther. And it's just things just work out. Why? Because God's at work, but he's at work under these seemingly random circumstances, dumb luck, right? And Seems to be at times. And the Jews celebrate the festival of Purim, which is the celebrating the events of the book of Esther, uh, by sell by with a little gambling game, the 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 poor. They they it's a little little like dice kind of thing that they spin. And they play this little fun gambling. I don't know if there's big money riding on it or not, but uh, they play this little little game that kind of celebrates the god of chance, the god of dumb luck. Mm. Uh, Robert Capon said, "Luck used to be holy until the gamblers got a hold of it." <laughs> See, because what do gamblers do? They try to shift luck their way. It's not random, you know. If I 
if I, you know, step on a crack, you break your mother's back, that kind of thing. So they have all kinds of rituals, uh, everything from crossing yourself to uh, having the same drink before you go to the blackjack table or wear the same clothes. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and all of these are, are forms of the gambler's fallacy, which which basically says, I can do something to change the odds of something happening. And you can't. You, know, you can't. So a lot of superstition. You just- you just touched on something that goes back to our baseball conversation in that people are so attached to their teams that they, they identify so strongly that they believe that if I show up, they'll win or, or lose, as the case may be. Or if I wear my hat inside out after the seventh inning, it's going to bring good luck to the team. <laughs> right. and, you know, and, and it's funny because we do it in a goofy way, but there's still something deep inside that makes us – Makes us think, hmm, maybe, maybe I, I can help the team with good vibes or something. Right. The, all of that goes back to a common fallacy in Latin. It's called post hoc ergo propter hoc. Um, mm-hmm. After that, therefore, because of that. So it's the seventh inning, and I'm wearing my favorite team's baseball hat, and I just arbitrarily turn it around backwards, and the next guy hits a home run. So I conclude, ah, uh, a home run happened after I turned my hat around. Therefore, it happened because I turned my hat around. It's the mother of all superstitions. You see, something happened after something else. Therefore, I conclude that that's what caused it to happen in the first place. And so you find athletes, are, especially baseball players for some reason, really superstitious. Oh, man, watch a batter step up to the plate. Oh, yeah, there's a liturgy. Uh, oh, gosh. I mean, I, you know, you and I don't have that much of a ritual in the sacristy. <laughs> you know, I say a prayer and I may, I may have a few uh, ritual gestures. But these guys, you know, they step out of the dugout, take a few swings with the, the warm-up bat, uh, adjust the cup, uh, spit three times, make the sign of the cross, touch their lips, point to heaven. Uh, I don't know what that is. You know, acknowledge mom whatever, uh, and then they do it over again, adjust themselves a few. They adjust themselves a lot. Uh, baseball players, I think, adjust themselves more per unit time than any other athlete. They, they got that from Michael Jackson. I think. <laughs> yeah, well, no, Michael Jackson got it from baseball. <laughs> oh, yeah, the way I around. Th- I think. Yeah. So, so what's your take on the gambling? <sighs> As with everything, I, I, I think there's like layers to look at. Right. Okay. Um, first of all, I agree with you in, insofar as you took it namely as entertainment, although I think it's kind of an interesting interesting criterion. If it's entertaining, therefore it's not sinful. <laughs> I'm not sure we can go down that well, road. We could say that about a strip club, too. Guess, yeah, right. There's probably a, not a good, see, so as, good as, as criteria go, that's not a really good one. But I think I know what you're saying. You're doing it for fun. You're not doing it to feed the family, or you're not doing it out of compulsion or addiction. You're not doing it as, as a... As a uh, a first commandment issue where right. it's becoming a god to you or anything. And and you you we've we've been down this road, maybe even this particular one before, but but no issue in my book is ever really in black and white. It's it's never really binary. I think you have to kind of peel the layers back and look at it. So one layer <clears throat> that you're talking about is motivation. Why are you doing it? Right. Um you know and I think of like the friendly game of poker I, I know I know people, you know, guys who get together Friday night, Saturday nights. You know, it's kind of a guys thing. 
Uh, maybe sometimes the girls are involved too, but they, they have their poker night and, and it's friendly. They're not really winning tons of money. They're not losing the farm. Uh, it's, it's a way of, of just kind of getting together. It's a form of fellowship and, and gaming and, and by putting in a little bit of money, it ups the ante, so to speak, no pun intended. It, it makes it just a little bit more exciting. It's like wagering on, you, know, you go out for golf, round of golf, and you wager on the next shot, that putt, um, the overall round. It, does, is that gambling? Is that a sinful thing to do? Uh, probably not. If you're gambling $100,000 on that round of golf. Uh, well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, say you're a multi-billionaire, 100 bucks to you. I'll like give a, you. Like a Big Mac uh, Happy Meal to me. I'll something. give you a good example. We shifted over to something like gluttony. See, and that has all kinds right. of nuances too. So at one point, at what point is enjoying your food crossing the line with making food kind of like the central thing in your life and an idol and you can't live without it or overeating to the detriment of your health or hey, what, Bill, you know, however you, we you, do. You can't live without food. I, that particular kind of food, you know what I'm talking about. So, you know. <laughs> No, I know you can't live without food. You can live without gambling. So you got to acknowledge live that. I for a couple of months probably. But, uh, Here's another yeah. question I have is uh, at what point is investing in short-term investing in the stock market gambling? Ah, yes. <laughs> you know, we have or a... even long-term. We have a, a, a radio announcer that uh, introduces the market report with, and now for legalized gambling, <laughs> uh, they've just legalized betting on sports. Uh, it, at, to what point is is that a good idea? Does it taint the sport? Uh, does it? There's there's always kind of an upside and a downside once you start getting into this world. So at the the form of fellowship and entertainment, bunch of people going out, playing a little poker, playing a little, um, just you know, playing some blackjack and stuff. It's fun. It's entertaining. Pushes a little bit on the excitement center. You know, whatever. But I think there's some other issues. So uh, the writer of the letter names one of them addiction because right. it is a repetitive compulsive behavior that pushes on those dopamine receptors. Uh, you got to be real careful because those kinds of things can unwittingly become uh, a habit that becomes an addiction, becomes something you don't stop and you've lost control. So if you're mastered by something, that's not good. You know, remember what Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free, uh, therefore let us not be enslaved to anything. So that would be one, one thing. Well, I don't know where else to go with this. I think. Well, uh, I, th I think there's another, there's another place to go, and that is um, the issue of covetousness. That goes that goes to motive. Now, if you're playing if you're playing the lotto because you want to hit it big, so you can be happy because now you're going to have uh, several million or even half a billion dollars for life, and you don't have to work and you don't have to do anything. If you think that that money is going to make your life happy and better, and that's you know that's covetousness, which Saint Paul says is idolatry. That's the looping of the commandments. Commandments nine and ten go back to commandment number one. What do you fear, love, and trust the most? And so the idea of getting rich easy, getting rich quick, getting rich money for nothing, yep, uh, that kind of covetousness is at the heart of idolatry. And so, yeah, that that is sinful, and we all do it in one way, shape, or form, or another. 
you know, growing up, I've known some insanely rich people, uh, billionaires in the 1980s, and they were not happy. <laughs> they just weren't happy people. They were paranoid. Everyone's trying to take advantage of them. Oh, well, and uh, they are. <laughs> Everybody yeah, well, is. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> if you think that getting a billion dollars in your bank account is going to make you happy, it's just going to have sharks circling you 24-7, and you're not even going to know who to trust anymore. And you're going to alienate your old friends because, after all, they come to you and hit you up. Hey, I've got this this thing over here. You should invest in. You know, give me a hundred grand, and I'll, and of course, it disappears or whatever. But uh, you know, so so riches are not going to make your, you happy. But making a good living uh, certainly doesn't stink because you can at least pay your bills and not panic at the end of every month. But uh, you know, yeah, if, I understand that. If I've got if I've got a parishioner who comes to me and asks me a question like that, one of the first questions I'm going to ask back before I even try to answer it is, "What are we talking about?" Yeah, you know, are we talking are we talking about buying a dozen lotto tickets every every week at the grocery store along with the the family's groceries? I I have known people who have basically whittled away an entire life savings doing that. Mm. And the odds of winning are, you, you may as well like bet on being struck by lightning. Powerball, one in 292 million. <laughs> yeah, I just right. looked that up while we were talking. And nothing you can do is going to change the odds of that. You know? No, and uh, it doesn't matter if it's $100,000 or $100 million. It's still one in 292 And it million. doesn't matter if those are your lucky numbers either. Those numbers all have the same odds are coming up. So, And if you buy 10 tickets, it's still one in 292 ah, million. Yes, another another fallacy. That, right. you know, it, it, a related one is that machine hasn't paid out in a while. It's do right. no no it's not the odds are the same on every poll <laughs> <laughs> so and, and not only that but those machines are fixed to a certain extent is Ooh. that well they're fixed in terms of the odds of paying out so they can right. be adjusted up or down and so you don't always know even how prone the machine is to paying out okay but pastor swirla i play craps and if you know how to play craps that's the closest to even money that there is in the casino. So that's different than playing like roulette. Yeah, um, although you can you can kind of stay you can stay close to the game with roulette by strategic betting. Uh, but that's totally random. Also, blackjack is very close. the The odds are only slightly in favor of the house. Always remember in those kinds of games, it's always in favor of the house. That's how they built the house in the first place. Or as I like to point out. There's a reason that they have the big building and you don't. Yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think f for the most part, at least until most recent times, they built those things in cash. But yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of you know people who can't afford it. That's their cash that that went into that. I, I think that level of gambling, casino gambling, and I think I think one of the most evil forms of gambling are the state lottos. And, uh, here, the, the and here's state why. The of Hawaii refuses to allow a lottery because they they believe it's boy. They're they're one of the they're one of the last. Um, because here's why it it really keys in on the poor people. The they're the ones who generally want to get out of their poverty quick, the quick and easy, the e ticket out. Yeah. And that is buy that winning lotto ticket, that Powerball, that Scratchers or whatever. Uh, they're sold by by just reams in in convenience stores, gas station convenience stores, the, this this kind of thing. Um, and like I said, I've known people who have just frittered away their entire retirement savings, everything, 
just one Powerball ticket at a time. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it wrecked it wrecked their their retirement, their marriage, everything went down the tubes just buying tickets and and person couldn't stop. There's always this is gonna be the one. This is gonna be the, and then you get into then you start losing money and you wanna pay it back, so I gotta win to pay back what I lost. You know, let's stop and think about this for a second. It becomes a very irrational behavior. Uh, the other evil is that the state relies on this for revenue. Right. And so it's feeding that ever-hungry beast called the government that just can't get enough of people's money, whether it be taxes or now they're just gobbling it up by tossing out a big big Powerball win once in a while, but you don't see how much revenue they're sucking in in doing that. So it, it, they basically have taken the place of organized crime. In, in a lot of ways, yeah. You know, and that's, that's the whole thing. With legalizing marijuana, we talked about that last show. Mm-hmm. But a lot of are we on a vice theme right now? Is this I, kind you of know a what I was Hollywood... thinking about that earlier because we had guns and marijuana last time. Yeah, we've got yeah, guns now we're... and guns. Yeah. Hmm. Now we've got uh, uh, we've got uh, gambling. What's what's next? I guess we could. Uh, it's taking a sinister alcohol. turn. We need to take up alcohol so we can have the full BATF. I guess. But uh, anyway, I, I lost my train of thought. What well, we're we're just talking. You know, the, the gambling always comes with other nefarious stuff. Oh. Atlantic yeah, City, was... Atlantic City had the mob. Las Vegas for a long time, and I don't know, maybe still does. Has there's an undercurrent of crime whenever there's gambling, especially the big time casino organized gambling. And now, what have we done? We we're paying off the American Indians. Right, you know, for having screwed them out of their land and stuff like that. Now, well, you can set up a casino. That's great. All right, great. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> By the way, if you're ever in Las Vegas and you have a free afternoon, the Mobster Museum is fantastic. <laughs> it is it, the Mob Museum is is it's really really good. A lot of your relatives, I would imagine. Um, I can neither confirm nor deny that, <laughs> as uh, they may or may not be in protective. Uh, uh, Witness protection program. Witness protection, and uh, now their last names may be Smith. <laughs> but it's it's there's like a whole Sicilian room. I'm sure. I, I'm sure. Hey, you're hey we're we're Napolitano. Take it easy there. Uh, one of the worst things that can happen to you in gambling is actually winning. In a way, it, it really feeds a monster. In a way, it, and that's why Las Vegas works. So you win you win some money at say one of the machines. Right. And what do you do? Oh, you now you've got more money to play with. And they know that. They know you that. You it back in, yeah. Yeah. I used to enjoy playing craps. And uh, what I would do is I'd start with 50 bucks, and that was it. And I, I'd say 50 bucks, and that's all. And I'd put it down. And if I was on a winning streak, I'd pocket my original 50 bucks in chips. And then mm. I'd play with the winnings. And then if I won three, I'd keep one and play with two and that sort of thing. And... Uh, you know, I could, I could walk out of there 40 bucks richer at the end of the night. Yeah. Well, but that's I, one I thing. I pulled off the major like, oh, I won 10, 10 grand or anything like that. Set a limit. Here's uh, here's another facet, too. I know there are also peop- times where the 50 bucks was gone in 45 minutes, and then I walk away. But I know people who are mathematical geniuses. In fact, one of the guys in high school that I knew was just a math wizard. And he's a professional gambler. He's so good at numbers. He's so good at math that he... And those guys get blackballed pretty soon. Yeah, yeah, they do, because he knows where the margins are. He right. knows he knows the games that are only marginally favored the house, and he knows 
how he's got ways in his head to keep track of things, and he knows patterns of betting, and and they're watching him really closely because, see, he's in on the ruse. Now, he's not trying to shift Lady Luck in his favor. He he knows the mathematics behind these things, and he's taking advantage of it. And right. and once you once they catch on, then you're persona non grata. You're gone from the casinos. They they've got your mug shot up all over the place. Well, but the guy's a pro. Really, that's really curious to me because card games like poker and blackjack, uh, you can actually play the odds on some of these games if you're really a mathematical whiz and you can count five decks at a time and that sort of thing. But uh, I've always found it interesting that counting cards is is considered cheating, and it's just simply using your brain to bet wisely. Right, but it's it's cheating in a world of illusion because well, because it's isn't supposed the casino to be... cheating by stacking the odds in their favor? Yeah, well, so see, basically now you're asking the hard question, aren't you? It's good you? for them, but not for you, I guess. See now, That's... the guy that I knew in high school, he does most of his he he does, he makes most of his money in professional poker. Now there yeah. you're not playing against the house. There you're playing against fellow fellow poker players. Oh man, that requires both math and psychology. Well, and the ability to lie. And that kind of gets into another interesting thing. Is 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 playing poker an exercise in deceit? And 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 you could ask that really of a lot of game playing cuz a lot of game playing is about uh, deceit to gain an advantage over your opponent, right? And yeah. so is is that is that really um an activity that one uh, for whom the truth is so important and truthfulness is a reflection of our holiness. Is, is, that, is that something that we want to be practicing? I, I don't really have a good answer for that. I, I think my partial answer is so long as we know that we're all lying in, in the interest of the game, Right. Then then it's okay because we've kind of like created a little micro universe where we're, we're not hurting each other, we're entertaining each other by lying. Because I play cards with my friends, not gambling, but I play cards. There's plenty of deceit in cards. Sure. And uh, and and but you do that for for entertainment purposes only. Uh, so again, life's kind of great. I think we've got some good criteria though, right? That it has sure. there there has to be fun. It has to be entertaining. You you can't be gambling. Uh, your livelihood away. Uh, this this can't be hurting your family and others. I don't think you, you ought to stop about stop and think about feeding the big beast, right? When you buy a lotto ticket or when you when you you're feeding a very large beast with your your small amount of money. It may not seem like much to you, but you're feeding the government beast. You're feeding the gambling beast. You're feeding a lot of uh, you know they're, they're basically robbing the poor. And capitalizing on weakness, and you are pushing on the coveting thing. If you think you're going to get rich doing this, right? And finally, the last point that I would make is: you do not have to get even. Once you've lost the money, just just accept I lost and walk away. I you would rather get even. You I would rather blow a machine ever a hundred bucks on a bottle of high end tequila than spend five minutes at a machine in Las Vegas. <laughs> I would rather hit a machine for five minutes than even look at tequila. That's so. well that's but but <laughs> let's just move it over to what's what's your favorite what's the rum. favorite drink at I the Royal Ohana really, room? Really high end rums that uh, I I'll tell you about this. I think maybe I mentioned this before. We went to this tiki confab a couple of years ago called the Hukilao in, in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I got to know the guy who is the world ambassador of rum. His name's Ian. <laughs> really? 
Yes. World job ambassador. Yes. And so Ian, uh, I got to know him at this one rum symposium. We started chatting and kind of hit it off. And I was back down where the symposiums were held, and there was a high-end rum-tasting symposium that sold out in like 45 seconds. I couldn't get in on it. And I was kind of sad. But I was poking around down there. I think I was looking for my wife, and I stuck my head in the door wondering if she was in there. And he had just finished this, and he had all these bottles of rum starting at about 120 bucks and going up to about 500 bucks a bottle. And he said, Craig, come on in here. We need to finish this rum. <laughs> oh, uh, here am I. Send me. Send I know. me. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. If I must, and really? I sat down there for about an hour and a half and drank fine rum after fine rum. And I tell you, it was a religious experience. It changed my <laughs> whole worldview. Hey, speaking of religious experiences and substances, I, I've got another quick short letter. You want to? You want to? Want to grab a look at it? It's kind of interesting. Yes. Yeah. Let's do that. Um, so, dear, dear GW, uh, I've been reading in various commentaries and articles that sorcery, the word sorcery in the Bible, is actually the word for pharmaceutical. Mm. Does this Pharm- mean the th- pharmacai? Or whatever yeah, yeah. The, and so the question: Does this mean that medicine or pharmaceuticals are a form of sorcery? And, and can a Christian take prescription medicines? Well, I'll, I'll say this, Bill. I believe that uh, herbs are witchcraft and voodoo, but if it's actually refined in a laboratory, then it's fine science. <laughs> so in other words, natural products, sorcery, um, manufactured in a lab, gift of God, first article. Uh, no, th- this whole idea is, well, let's, is let's, lunacy. Let's trace I, it. Let's, let's tr- I know there are some pastors who have pushed this nonsense. Let's, let's just trace it. Well, I've seen it. I've seen it. You know, like these, you know these sites where you got to get more authentic? And I forgot which it was, and I'm not going to put a label on it because I'd, I'd be misrepresenting something. But I saw it in a, in a thing where, you know, it's kind of like biblical living where they try to kind of get everything out of the Bible, how to order your life. And that literally was one of them. I, I saw it on a website that, that said pharmakeia, pharmakoi, pharmakeus. Uh, these are all forms. Uh, pharmakon is the noun for drug in, in Greek. And a pharmakos is, uh, is one skilled in the use of herbs or drugs. So we get the word pharmacy, pharmaceutical, pharmacist. Yeah. It all comes from that. But I actually saw a website, one of these kind of like, you know, these weird cultish sort of things where they, they basically were saying that, that pharmaceuticals are in this category, see, and th- that the Christian should not be taking pharmaceuticals. Um, so <laughs> where does it come from? Galatians 5.20, Paul lists among the works of the flesh, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, etc., and the word in Greek is pharmakeia. And then in Revelation 22, outside the city, outside of God's city, uh, are the dogs and the sorcerers, the pharmakoi, the pharmacists. <laughs> so you can see what happens is that you get this word, you find a little Greek, and then you go back into our English usage and say, aha, see, drugs are bad. And they're, well, you, you need you need to take something commentary for that. Take, commentary into you know, this is what always makes me just shake my head. Um, people who insist that Western medicine, evil big pharma, all this kind of stuff is evil, 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 until you get really sick. And all of a sudden, 
oh no, it's not so bad. I I need it now. But you know, when it's when it's uh, a matter of my hangnail or or little skin condition, uh, you know, I'll get my yak bladder and and uh, you know rub it on that and. That that's going to do wonders, but you <laughs> it's know, like one time I, I don't asked, get cortisone. That's you know they're, that big company is behind that, and they probably support abortion. So. I had a Chinese, a, an old Chinese cardiologist. Uh, his name was Kang, and he was like he was revered as the godfather in this practice. Apparently, just just a stellar guy, top graduate, major major medical schools. And I asked him one time. I, I said uh, Chinese herbal medicine. And I just, I didn't even ask the question. He gives me this scowling look and he looks at me. He goes, he goes, ignorant Chinese superstition. <laughs> he says, nice. he says, anybody who's educated and has money in China practices Western medicine. That's it. <laughs> he was done. Uh, so, so much for that, that kind of thing. But he just called it superstition. We have a funny notion, I think, that somehow a natural product is good and a manufactured product is evil. They're not. They're just different forms of similar things. You know? Yeah, I always like to point out that poison ivy is natural. Why don't you oh, yeah. Ricin, ricin is natural, too. Oh, yeah. uh, there's, yeah. in fact... Uh, Nature is the best chemist around. I mean, the, chemi- the chemicals found in nature are just amazing. Uh, so natural doesn't mean necessarily good for you either. No. The other, I think the place where you have to start in this is that everything in the created order is good by definition. There's, there is nothing that is inherently evil in the created order. So whether you look at it at the molecular level, the atomic level, the natural versus man-made level, it's all good as it is all an arrangement or a rearrangement of God's created order. Now, whether it's good for you, whether it accomplishes a good purpose, that's another question, but the thing itself is, is good. So you can't say drugs are evil. It's how they're being used, which I think gets to the point of these passages. The pharmakeia that's referred to here is the use of drugs as a potion to create a religious ecstasy or to try to get closer to God or to do some kind of, you know, this is what Timothy Leary was doing in the lab at Harvard with LSD. Yeah, Yeah, he wasn't just getting high for fun. He was looking for heightened awareness, heightened consciousness, uh, a God experience, that kind of thing. And this has been known for, for centuries so even in Paul's day, there were the sorcerers, the potion makers. Uh, they were probably boiling toads and extracting <laughs> tree bark and licking mushrooms. And uh, there's, there are whole cultures built around this. There are whole religions built around this stuff. Well, and I'd like to point out also, and, and, and this will make uh, Jim Veltz very happy to hear, is that words do change meanings over time. They, they do. They, and they, when you're looking at Koine or classical Greek 2,000 years ago and modern English, the words may share the same root, but they don't mean the same thing. Well, and, and also words don't have necessarily a, a really narrow bandwidth. Some have a wide bandwidth of meaning. Well, that too, yeah. So, so the word pharmakeia, for example, can mean the potions used in sorcery and divination and religious cultic behavior, that kind of thing. But here's the weird thing. The church fathers used that word for the Eucharist. 
Remember the medicine of immortality? I've heard that before. That's the pharmacon Anastasias, the the medicine of resurrection. See, so so they didn't have a problem, no problem with that word when it comes to the Lord's Supper. It's like it's the ultimate pharma pharmakeia. Uh, but it's not for some feeling of religious ecstasy. It is it is the body and blood of Christ that has conquered death and that will raise you from the dead on the last day. So they called it a medicine of immortality. Wow. So, wow. no, to get to the quick answer to the question, silly. Uh, the domain, the, the, the bandwidth of meaning has grown wider. And in, the, in modern medical science, uh, it's a neutral word. Uh, in fact, as you said, when you get sick, even the most religious people go to a doctor and you take your prescription even as you pray. Yes. However, uh, still to this day, there are, there are religious cults and religions and cultures built around hallucinogenic drugs or drugs that, that heighten some kind of brain function in a weird way. And we got to be kind of careful there because I do think that uh, drug use and abuse does open you up to some nasty demonic realms. I, I've known enough meth heads who've seen demons crawling up and down the wall not to doubt <laughs> that, that this is not a good thing to do, you mm. know, the, that your mind is a, a very precious gift from God. And I think that uh, to use the good gift of these pharmacoi for those purposes is not a good end. So how about a, a little... Um Issues and uh, etc. You mean current issues, etc. Yeah, oh, yeah, we, we, we don't we don't want to be that's confused with the current, other show. Current issues and etc. Yeah, that's it. No, we wouldn't want to be confused by. By, <laughs> you know, totally I, I don't know if there is such a show, but I just wouldn't want to be confused with it. So, let's see what we've got here. We have Donald Trump. Do you know that he has a spiritual advisor? I didn't know that until you told me about this. Woman uh, by the name of Paula White, a name that, that a name that's kind of near and dear to your heart. That's uh, Paula or White? Paula. Paula oh, good. White. Good. Then uh, you're not accusing me of being a racist. That's right. So that's um, Paula White said, many Christians take the Bible out of context when they are speaking about immigration and Jesus. She says that Jesus wouldn't have been the Messiah if he broke immigration law. Um, uh, based on what? I guess would be my first question. Well, I mean, there are two things. There, there, there are two questions here. One is, what, is the, what was the immigration law at the time of Jesus? And I think what she's referring to is uh, the rather hasty exit Right from Israel to Egypt, and then the return um, about what three three years later, whatever. So uh, out of Egypt, I've called my son. So so Joseph gets a vision in a dream to take the child and go to Egypt because Herod's trying to kill him. Right, and right. so he takes Mary and he takes Joseph. The family goes down to Egypt, and they reside there for a while. And then in a Another dream, he's told he can come back, and so he goes and he settles back up in Nazareth where they came from. So the question is, uh, was was Jesus essentially a refugee and an illegal immigrant in Egypt? Well, the text doesn't give us enough information to know if they went through the proper embassy paperwork or not. 
if if they went to the the legation and uh, filed the proper paperwork for refugee status and got it copied in triplicate and rubber stamped, then they would be okay. Otherwise, Jesus can't be the Messiah. <laughs> well, that's the second issue. See if now if Jesus breaks immigration law, then he would not be the sinless one that the Messiah has to be, right? But if he's a helpless kid and he's being carted along by his parents, is he really sinning or are his parents sinning? I think a lot of the problem is probably putting a 21st century American context on <laughs> Well, there's that. So so this get so the reason I bring this up is is it gets caught right in the middle because look at what the current situation does with this. Okay? So first of all, I think she's right. I I think that the whole thing is out of context. That uh, first of all, the notion of national boundaries and borders was was not was nothing like it is today. Well, and it was all part of the Roman Empire. Exactly. So you can see it's like the European Union where you yeah. can go from Europe, EU country to EU country without any problems. So you got that. Also, in Egypt was a large diaspora of Jews to begin with. That's why they went there. It was a safe place. There are probably relatives down there. Joseph could get work. They could exist right. down there. It was it it there were already a huge number of Jews living in Egypt at that time. So it wasn't even out of place for them to do that. But there wasn't a hard boundary, a hard border between Israel and Egypt. These were just lands that were part of the greater Roman Empire. So the comparison is just it's just wrong. Okay, and you're right. It's it's anachronism. We're we're projecting back a modern notion of nation and boundary onto the first century Roman Empire. It doesn't work. So, but well, one could look at right. it this way. Also, I fled the state of California for sanity somewhere, and uh, I'm still <laughs> looking for the sanity. Yeah, well, but that I, the insanity tags the along with you. But I didn't flee it illegally. Uh, because I didn't need permission to leave the state. I think that's a, probably the best analogy. It, it would be like moving between the states. Yeah. Here. Uh, there, there are state... It's all part of the empire. We have state lines. When you're driving around on the highways, you cross one state line, you go into another state, and, and there's a marker for that. Uh, and I always stop at the Welcome Center to go to the bathroom. So that's, that's a welcome kind of thing. But there's no... You know, you don't need a passport. Although I think at Texas, you probably should. I, I think that that should be a passport <laughs> to get in or out. Uh, to get in, I mean, because <laughs> it's it, it's it's. I don't. They say it's a state, but I think it, I think it's a separate country. Yeah, this is uh, Paula White. I knew she sounded familiar. She's a TV evangelist, New Destiny Christian Center. She yeah. is the spiritual advisor for Donald Trump. He has a spiritual advisor. She's she's. Rather attractive lady, but uh, I know I've watched her a couple of times, and she's a flaming weirdo. Well, yeah, but she's also the spiritual advisor to the president of the United States, well, so we need to take why? this because seriously. And why? Because she's a pretty blonde. That's why. I think there Just... may be something to that. <laughs> she was she was touring at the time a foster facility in Virginia, uh, ah. where where several unaccompanied immigrant children were being housed. Now, these children were not kind of border children. They were being trafficked into the U.S. from countries like El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. Yeah. A lot of yeah. child trafficking going on. 
Not good. And so she praised the facility, described it as amazing, expressed pleasure, pointing out that the center provided not only three healthy meals a day, but also schooling, psychiatric care, medical care, clinician, language, chapel services. See, and so, but the problem comes in where people are trying to equate uh, the Holy Family's flight to Egypt with families bringing their children illegally to the border. See, and it's a kind of, what, what, what if that were Jesus? Would you let Jesus, would you put Jesus in a detention center? And I well, think, let me, I let hate me to say this, this but though. I think she's right. I think she's absolutely right. And, and you agreed, too, that this isn't apples and oranges. That wasn't the situation at all. Now, here's where she gets into hot water. Is She says, if it had been illegal, then he wouldn't have properly been the Messiah. Why? See, because it would have been sin. And now, how does this get spun? The statement made by White implied that the children smuggled into the U.S. by parents could be considered sinful, even Uh, though they had no say in the matter. Right, and that's right where I was about to go is, even if it was wrong for Mary and Joseph to take Jesus to Egypt, he was a passenger. He didn't do it. He, he, He was too young. He couldn't make these decisions. Well, in, in old in uh, under Old Testament law, yeah, I think twelve was about that age where you began to be responsible for your own actions. Well, yeah, you get the bar mitzvah, and you get so the yeah, party. no, he's you're, under the authority of his parents, and so it's yeah. their problem if it's illegal. But it's not even illegal because the whole thing is just not the same. So I'm not sure, even if it were illegal, how she could make a statement like that, except that she's playing to the cameras. I, this is something else that I she think has she, in common with I, Donald Trump. I was just looking at Wikipedia. Oh, camera March savvy. March 2014, mm-hmm. she filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So <laughs> there's that also. Oh. <laughs> anyway, you know, you see this a lot. You, you see the holy family thing being uh, used as kind of the poster child for the play to the homeless, the play to the poor. Uh, the plight of the refugee, the immigrant, and all of these things. But all of these things are really reading into the text something that's not there. Mm-hmm. There's no notion here that Mary and Joseph were poor. I mean, Joseph worked a trade. Yeah. And so He's there's no notion of poverty. middle class. Uh, yeah, they were, Regular fle- Joe. they were fleeing oppression. This is true. Herod was trying to kill him. Specifically right. him. And to make sure he got him, he killed all the baby boys he could find in Bethlehem. So you got that. And Herod had a track record. And Joseph's operating with, with a dream. He's, he's got a divine vision on his hands. So, you know, th- this is a rather unique story. And it doesn't lend well to generalization. And that's what, that's what people do with the Bible a lot. They take a specific thing and they generalize it. They take something that happened to a specific person and they make it applicable to all people or me. You know, uh, so like Jeremiah was called to be a prophet from the womb. Uh, that doesn't mean you're called to be a prophet from the womb. <laughs> it means Jeremiah was, okay? Uh, it's kind of hard news for a lot of people to discover that the Bible's actually not talking about them. It's not about you. It's it's about salvation history. You're part of it, but the Bible's not talking about you. Right, right. I, you know, I'd just also like to point out this, that if your eldest male child was born... Uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and God had come and spoken to you before about this, and he comes and visits you again and says, hey, I want you to sneak from Tijuana into California, 
I, it's not a sin if God's telling you to do this. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know how God could tell you to do something that would be sinful. I think that's that's an issue right there. Now, the the flip side of things, there's always other sides to look at it, is that um, laws are considered part of God's law when they don't um, contradict God's law. You know, obviously we have to be a God, obey God rather than men, but that's not a blanket license to break every law we feel isn't fair or right or unjust or whatever else. So to knowingly violate immigration law is not a godly thing to do. That is actually sinful under the fourth commandment. Okay, so what if you live in a country that encourages you to sneak into another country, but the other country doesn't want you to sneak in? (laughs) What do you do? Whose laws do you obey? Yeah, I know. Boy, this is one for the ethicists. That's that's beyond my pay grade right there. I don't know. I don't, anyway, that I that's, that that's I don't know that she either. said this in the first place. I I I rather I'm rather pleased that she said it. I think she parsed the issue correctly. And I think I think she she did right in noting that were these kids who were uh, basically trafficked into this country um, are actually being well cared for. I think the spin is always in the opposite direction. We're separating families. And we've got, you know, kids in detention centers, blah, blah, blah. We're, we're losing track of the flip side of this. A lot of these kids are pawns in a very sophisticated yeah. game to basically game our immigration laws. You try to immigrate to another country, see how far you get. You I've try to heard... get citizenship in other countries. Go to Canada, try to get citizenship. Yeah. Australia's pretty strict also. Yeah. Um, I don't even know where I was going. Never mind. The, the the problem I have when I think about the whole issue, and it opens up the wider issue of immigration, is borders. You know, borders are kind of strange. If you go down to the Mexican border, say the U.S.-Mexico border, you can't tell their version of the desert from our version of the desert. It just looks like wasteland. Yeah, that's true. You, you go up to Canada, you can't, you, you don't know. There's It's not like all of a sudden, like the, the color of the dirt changes when you cross the, the border. Um, the people keep saying A, but that's really, that's, you know. Neither here nor there. In fact, north, northern Midwest and Canadian kind of sound pretty similar in English. They do. They do. So, you know, my question is, are, are borders arbitrary? Are they man-made things? They certainly don't have any divine right. God has not so ordained it that these are the boundaries. The only boundary lines God has ever ordained are the boundary lines of Old Testament Israel. And Israel didn't even respect those. <laughs> they kept <laughs> enlarging them. But um, those are the only boundary lines set by God. These, these, are, these are boundary lines that we've set. However we did it, fight a war, treaty, negotiate. So when people want to come over for economic benefit, better their families, do, are they doing wrong necessarily? If, if they come illegally or legally? However they come. What if our what if our immigration laws are are unjust? Look, I, I was getting ready to move to the Czech Republic, and I was ready to obey Czech law because you got no you I have no it. choice, right? So you know that's the thing. If you are immigrating to another country, you obey that country's laws, not the laws of the country that you came from. And I don't know if that answers your question or not, but that's kind of where. I, what I heard, you know, from 
Well, hey, I've think. known I've known people who have served as pastors in other countries who've gotten the boot out of those countries faster than anything when things went south in terms of their employment or their relationship oh, with yeah. the congregation. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, kaboom, you are out of there. Sure. So, you know, that's the problem, I think. We, we're in a, a paradoxical tension right now between nationalism and globalism. I, I think it's going to be challenging, and it's going to be really challenging for the next generation to figure this out. Because to a certain extent, these boundaries to our thinking seem kind of arbitrary, seeing as how we have lots of, of communication contact, trade content, contact, vacation contact with Mexico. People go there all the time. And so there's, a, there's kind of this notion is what's the big deal? Shouldn't people have the, the, the right to migrate wherever they, they please? Well, one— Obey the laws of the country that you're moving to, and that includes how you migrate. And two, it's an economic issue as well because, you know, we have tax dollars that go to support various things, including the poor, and it's not it's not fair for you to flood another country with your poor just to be able to hand them off to someone else, and they're your trouble now. On the, other, on the other hand, by and large, I, I don't know where our particular church body is, but most churches are on the side of the immigrants. Well, I'm not opposed to the immigrants. I just think that you need to do things in a lawful way. Yeah, but I'm, what I'm saying is that churches will support immigrants. Remember that line from, from Gran Torino or... or Everyone blames the Lutherans. Yeah, everybody blames the Lutherans. That had to, that was dealing with the Vietnamese, the Hmong. Uh, the Hmong, yeah. yeah. So, but they were they were offering uh, refuge. They were they were helping them assimilate. They were helping them get citizenship. Uh, I, I think churches have had a long standing history of standing up for the the, the poor, uh, for the migrant, for the the you know the the, the people who are potentially exploited or who are fleeing oppression. And so it it's kind of leaves I think the church in a in a strange position because you don't want to disobey the government on the one hand but on the other hand we do tend to have um a heart for the the least and the lost and the poor among us and and uh, you, you can even cite old testament precedent where the sojourner and the foreigner had full rights of Israel inside Israel you know, because Israel itself was was a wanderer. Israel was living on borrowed land, land that was not theirs. I, I think that one can be compassionate and feed and clothe the poor and even house them, and yet still say you need to abide by the rule of law in this country. I don't think that that's in in uh, contradiction to itself. So in your foreign travels, and you, you did some as you were kind of lining yeah. up to go to the Czech Republic and be the director of communications for all of Eurasia. Right. What a sadness. Let's just pause. Okay, any, now that we've got that out of our system, um, did you ever have this sense of dumb luck that it's just simply by dumb luck that you happen to have been born in Orange County, California, that you oh, could yeah. you could have been you could have been well, then it wouldn't have been you, I suppose, but you could have been born in some oppressed, uh, you know, just some really messed up country somewhere. This and is why I hate going to Mexico, is because it reminds me of how incredibly fortunate I am in this life, and and it's it's just I don't know why God you know, chose some and not others to live in this country versus others or to be born in a squalor and poverty or, or what. But uh, 
yes. I mean, I feel very fortunate and very blessed to have been born in this country. Yeah, and it's like it's not like we say in the catechism, not through any merit or worthiness on our part. We 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 didn't do anything to be here, and right. and yet we are here. And so, being here, the question is, what are we going to do with it? And and I think the I think the answer is. Um, somewhere in between a completely open and porous border where people just kind of come and go and a, a sealed tight with a wall border where, you know, we'll, we'll let 10 in a year, that sort of thing. Because I, I don't, I don't think that either one of those is, is just or proper. I, I think somewhere in there, there is a, a way to do this justly and fairly where in, in, in essentially everybody benefits. I don't well, think everybody wants to live in the U.S. No, no. They're especially Europeans. They, they don't. <laughs> no, no, but, no, no. I don't see a flood of Swedes coming over, okay? No. This is but not then, happening. Then again, in the Czech Republic, you, you you tell them, I'm moving here, and they look at you and they go, why the F are you coming? Yeah, why? Why, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> and it was always, why the F? You know, it was not oh, just why. Oh, so they were passionate like, about yeah, the... Yeah, it's like, why, if you can live in Hollywood, which is what all of California is to them... Yes. Uh, why would you even think about coming here? It's cold, and uh, everything's old, and we don't use deodorant. Uh, but I think, Bill, honestly, I think to be a compassionate and loving society... Our government needs to put some pressure on Mexico to deal with their issues of corruption and their and their crime. Uh, I think if Mexico could clean up their act, that people wouldn't be fleeing. You know, well, that's are, the thing. As, people are running away from something, and it's not good. As long as there's a gradient, an economic gradient, a political gradient, some reason they're going they're going to come. And, yeah. and, you know, they're going to do it by sort of hook or crook. They're going to try, they're going to try to do it legally, failing legally. They will, they will do it illegally. And from many of the things that I've heard, um, and the, I know it's anecdotal, but living where I do, I, I know a lot of people legal, illegal, semi-legal trying, um, our immigration process, our citizenship process is utterly Byzantine. It's crazy. And people have lost tons of money just trying to work the system properly. They're trying to obey the law, and it's nearly impossible. Yeah, I had a vicar who was from Argentina. Oh, yeah, I who, forgot. Who the, was the really struggling just to stay in the country. And yeah. it, was, it was, you know, red tape, red tape, red tape, red tape. I said, Teo, why don't you just sneak across Mexican border and then sneak back in? You'll have more rights than the rest of us. You'll be <laughs> 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 we we have a guy at our church. He's he's uh, he's from China, mainland China, and he's he's operating on I don't know what kind of visa. He's legal in terms of visa, but he's got one of those visas where you got to exit the country and come back in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we had a, one of our local pastors had to do that because he's working on the same kind of visa. So he goes to Belize. You know, I'm thinking that's the ticket right there. You know, I got oh, yeah. I got to do a little out of country time. Let's go to Belize. Uh, but he's asking me, he says, what would it be like to say, I, I go down to Mexico and come back? And I go, hmm. And I couldn't advise him. I, I didn't know what he was doing. Right. But he just needs to basically go over the border and then turn around and come back. And I'm saying, yeah, that border is not a real friendly border at the moment. So I, I said, you better know what you're doing. I didn't know how to advise him. Yeah. I've got a friend who's a missionary down in Belize, and uh, it's beautiful, but he's working with the poorest of the poor. A lot of poverty. He's, he's doing a lot of really interesting things. A lot of poverty. There. So, yeah. I, you know, I think I think our awareness, our global awareness, 
um, due to the internet and other ways of communicating, I, I think it's going to change over the long run. Our, our notions of nationalism and borders are, is going to change. Now, you know, we're, we're in a movement where people are kind of hunkering back in. So Britain wants out of the European Union. We're trying to make America great again. But I think the long-term tra- trajectory is much more a kind of a cooperative attempt where you retain some sort of identity, but it's it's not the real hard borders that we're used to. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. It's interesting that, uh, you know, President Trump is trying to get those NATO nations to participate more financially in defense and that sort of thing. You could see the building of certain nations that haven't had strong military in a long time could uh, foster some war. You never know. As, as Oh, hey, where there's weapons, there will be war. All of a sudden they start war. to flex their muscle yep. and they say, hey, you know what? We took France before. We could do it again. One of the lessons of liberation theology is when the oppressed are liberated, they become oppressors. Yeah, we, yeah, let's let's find so. somebody to oppress. You know. Yes. And in an ultimate ultimate triumph of globalism, or at least North Americanism, uh, we are co-hosting the World Cup coming up. What twenty twenty four? I mean, like is yeah. uh, Canada, U.S., and Mexico as joint hosts? I love it. North America. A North American venue. I think that's very, very cool. Great seeing as how most of ladies. seeing it's as how wonderful mo- sport for girls. Most of our soccer players come from Mexico, anyway. I have to say that as a rugby player. The rug- oh, yes. It's a girl sport. You know, I, I've been watching the World <laughs> Cup, and there's a lot of acting, a lot of melodrama, a lot oh, of yeah. drama queens on that field. Yeah, you, yeah. you know, they, they would just be stomped to death in a rugby game. Oh, yeah. No. That this would, you know, that that writhing around in pain and then getting up and scoring a goal, this would not be tolerated in rugby at all. Well, and the other thing that's, that's funny is you watch rugby and someone gets a red card kicked out of the game. They hold up their hand and like, yeah, I did it. I'm guilty. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, in soccer, they pitch a fit and start crying. And they cried to mama. Carrying on and, and, you know, they start appealing to the crowd to kill the ref or something. And, and it's always been said that uh, rugby is a hooligan sport played by gentlemen and soccer is a gentleman's sport played by hooligans. <laughs> so it's well said. I think we're out of time for this episode, yeah, Craig. You can follow us on Facebook. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and other podcast feeds. You can email us at godwhispers at gmail.com. And you can find the complete archive of our work for the last 10 years at godwhispers.com. Thank you for listening. See ya. Thank you.